This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teeker. The newest gadget in my life is a smart speaker from Amazon. It runs a digital assistant. My name is Alexa. Alexa will read my calendar. Here are the next four events. And update my shopping list. Habanero peppers added. Alexa will order me more toilet paper. It's $25.12 total, including tax. Would you like to buy it? Alexa will call me a cab. Welcome to Lyft. Answer questions about the world. The population of Zimbabwe is about 14,100,000. But there is one thing that Alexa cannot do, which is use a man's voice. Now, it took my partner to point out to me how messed up this is how it reinforces the idea that women belong in subordinate roles as assistants. I am such a product of our society that this seemed perfectly normal to me until a woman pointed it out. And in fact, Alexa probably works this way because a design team at Amazon, almost certainly dominated by men, was building for someone like me. The politics of those design decisions, who makes them, how they get made, what they mean for the greater health of our society, that is the focus of our next guest's work. Sarah Washter-Betcher is a web consultant who focuses on designing things for people to use and has just written a book about how that process so often goes so horribly off track. It is called Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech. Thank you for coming in. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So can you start by kind of lifting the curtain for us a little bit. When a tech company is creating something for the consumer market, like a smart speaker, what does the design process actually look like inside the company? Well, of course, it varies from company to company, and I can't speak specifically to every tech company out there. But there are some things that are really common in the industry. One of the things that you see very often is that you'll have this idea for a product or an idea for a feature that kind of comes up in a meeting or, you know, somebody thinks up in the shower, bring it in, everybody's excited about it. And so you start thinking from this place of excitement. And from there, oftentimes, organizations use things like personas. So they'll start saying, well, who is our target user? And they'll build out this kind of fake profile of that person. So, you know, it's maybe it's a 34-year-old man um, who makes between one hundred and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year and has this kind of car and this kind of thing. And so all of that is kind of these these fake profiles of who they think their target customer is. Some of those are backed by research. Sometimes they're not so research based. But what those things end up becoming are the sort of back of your mind reference points for is this thing going to work or not work? What I've seen happen many, many times um, in my own work and and, in billion stories from other people is that those ideas of people who are going to use the product are really, really narrow. And they're really reflective of these design and technology teams that are yeah mostly male, mostly white, and don't necessarily have the broadest sense of what the full range of people are who might use a product. You know, for example, I was talking with somebody when I was writing the book who was working on this smartwatch that was meant to be targeted at women. And, you know, she goes into the meeting for the smartwatch targeted at women, and she's the only woman there. And the entire meeting is people saying things like, well, you know, my wife does this and my wife does that, and making these wild assumptions about what women wanted. And, you know, she was the the researcher on the project. She went and talked to women 
But the leadership on the project wouldn't listen to her, wouldn't believe what she actually got out of the research because they had it so stuck in their head that women wanted this product for exercise and shopping. And they didn't understand things like, no, what women really want this product for is so that they can keep track of what's going on during meetings without making it obvious that they're checking their phone. They just couldn't hear that because they had already laser focused on who they thought their audience was and and what they thought their audience cared about. So you see this all the time, these kind of really shallow understandings of people leading to design decisions that fail a whole lot of customers. So in this case, um, it led to a company launching a failed product. Yeah. So in that particular example, the smartwatch just completely tanked because they ended up hiring a celebrity to market it and ignored all of the research about what people wanted. And it turns out nobody wanted it. It seems to me there's there's um, an important distinction to make here between blind spots in the design process mm-hmm. that lead to products that are failures and bias in the design processes that lead to products that are successful because they are catering to the biases of the larger society. I have no doubt that when Amazon designed their digital assistant, Alexa, they did lots of focus grouping and user testing and determined that a lot of people are much more comfortable with a woman being the persona of their servant uh, because we live in a sexist Mm -hmm. society. You know, I think that that that's an important conversation to have. When people talk to me about that, it's like, okay, well, they're not creating sexism. That's just reflecting the sexism that already exists. That's fair. But I think it's important to remember that technology is not just a mirror. It can be a magnifying glass, right? So when you reinforce that, you further that normalization, you can actually make sexism worse. And I think tech has sort of gotten away with not dealing with how much of an impact it has on people for far too long. So you identify kind of like two major sources of bias in the design process. One is who gets the jobs. And the other is what data gets fed into decision making and into learning algorithms. So let's start with the who. Okay. Why is it so bad? Why are there so few women and people of color in tech? One of the things that we know is that women don't study computer science nearly as much as men. That has been true for a number of years, particularly since the mid-80s or so. There was a sort of precipitous decline in women studying computer science. A lot of that has been attributed to the way that personal computers were so heavily marketed to men and to boys in the 80s that it kind of pushed women out of the industry. There's also a lot um, to be said for sort of the bias toward people in tech who look like the successful people of the past. So if you look at, you know, you say a Mark Zuckerberg, then suddenly you you start saying like, oh, gosh, we need more like that. And then suddenly Harvard educated white dudes. Right. And then, yeah, then suddenly you're like, oh, yeah. OK, so more people like that equals more 22 year old white guys in a hoodie. And all of a sudden that seems like what success looks like. And so it creates this this cycle that sort of repeats itself over and over. But the other piece of it that I think is really not talked about enough, because we talk about things like the pipeline in tech and, oh, there's not enough technical people coming in who are women or people of color. This is the tech company saying, we would love to have parity in our hiring. We would love to have a fully representative workforce. But the American educational system is just not cranking out enough qualified people in all racial and gender categories for us to do that. And I think that that is simply not 
true or it's not true in the way that they say it's true. So, for example, you talk to people who come out of computer science programs in historically black colleges and universities and they're like, you know, tech companies don't recruit from here. The other thing, though, that you have to think a lot about is, well, what happens when people join the industry? There's lots of data about the average tenure of a woman in technology is a lot lower than a man. I mean, they, they'll often leave after a few years because they get burned out and frustrated. So They're, it's not a problem of not hiring <laughs> so much as a problem of driving away. I mean, that's a big piece of it. And, and then there's another piece of it, which I think is that um, when we talk about this issue, what we tend to talk about is people in engineering type roles. We don't tend to talk enough about what it really takes to make a tech product. When we talk about building tech products, we are actually talking about so many different pieces that need to go into it, which are understanding, you know, how is somebody going to use this? When and where does it fit into their life? What are the potential risks and pitfalls when we design this product? How is it going to make people feel? All of these questions that are fundamentally very human questions. And we don't talk enough about the sort of range of skills that is needed to make that happen. So the other is the data that's made to inform decisions. And you have a lot of really interesting writing, particularly how companies that make their money off advertising assemble information on their users. One of them is by use of something called a proxy. What is it? How does it work? Yeah, so proxy data is essentially saying we don't know this specific piece of information about you, but we can make some inference based off of what we do know about you. So, for example, go ahead. I've bought tickets to Marvel movies, therefore I must be a 15-year-old boy. Sure. So that would be a piece of proxy data that they have, right? You bought this ticket, and that would be the assumption that is made based off of that. One of the problems with using all of this data that we assemble about people is that we end up with some pretty skewed viewpoints about who people are or what they care about, particularly if the assumptions that are built into your model about who cares about what, so who likes Marvel movies, are faulty. So if the assumption about who likes Marvel movies is that it's 15-year-old boys and that's not actually the case, you kind of create these systems where maybe you're assumed to be a gender that you're not, and then that reinforces the idea that these are the people who like this, and then that goes and goes and goes over time, and you just get worse and worse information while getting more and more hyper-targeted. You pointed to a really interesting example of the technology serving as a magnifying glass rather than a mirror. And that was the natural language processing technology that the big tech companies are starting to invest in. So Google, in uh, furtherance of making its translation services more effective and making its digital assistant better able to respond to oral queries, has been mapping language by feeding in an enormous corpus of language as it already exists. Most of our biases are written into language as we use it. So it starts extrapolating some strange conclusions based on just being trained on the world as it is. Yeah. So what they do is they'll take a big corpus of information. So, and they'll say, okay, algorithm, 
go through these millions of words and learn things. And so one of the, the things that they found is very helpful linguistically is something they call word vectors. It's effectively looking at relationships between words. So instead of trying to understand what the individual words mean, it's more about how do words appear, appear in, in context with one another. And that helps with things that humans do really easily, like analogies. So, you know, king is to queen as man is to woman kind of stuff. And so you can teach an algorithm to do that if it can feed enough data into it. But depending on where that data comes from, it'll also learn all these other types of analogies. So there was a system called word to vec that Google researchers had originally developed, and they fed it millions of Google News articles. And one of the things that it learned was man is to computer programmer as woman is to homemaker. And what that means is that that kind of underlying technology then gets fed into some sort of software. So a thing like a personal assistant or a chat bot. And we won't see it, right? We don't see that bias, but it's kind of lurking in the background and it's influencing all of the ways that that thing might communicate and the decisions that that might make in the future. So you think about taking something like that and using it in, say, automated software designed to review resumes. And you can see how the bias that exists in that data set the algorithm learned from results in it spitting out biased decisions at the other end of that software. How do you even begin to fix something like that? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to recognize that the work that is happening in technology is extremely powerful in terms of the, the effect that it can have on people and the effect it can have on their emotional state, their social lives, their professional lives, their political world, right? You have, to, you have to first acknowledge the power and then you have to say, okay, well, we have a responsibility to figure out what are the worst things that can happen and how are we going to mitigate them? And then you have to build actual processes to deal with that. So you have to have a process where you try to identify what biases might exist in your data set, ask more difficult questions about where your data came from, and then figure out, well, okay, can we identify the biases that exist? And once we have a sense of those, how do we debias it? There are programmers who have worked on debiasing that particular example, right, where they're like, okay, how do we debias this data? That's something that you can figure out once you have taken the time to acknowledge this issue and invest in you sort of making it your responsibility to not just reflect back the past into the future. I mean, what incentives do large tech companies have to do that work other than being decent people? <laughs> right. So a lot of times people will say, well, what's going to be the return on investment of being less biased. And at some level, I'm like, that's kind of a non-starter. Um, I don't know, you know, what's the return on investment of any other basic ethical choice? I don't really want to live in a world where you have to reduce. We can think of lots of things that we've decided are intolerable that were profitable. Everything from, you know, like drug trade to Slavery. Slavery, right? Like, I mean, like, like we, we've decided things are intolerable. So I think that that's a big piece of it is to be able to say, like, look, we have to choose that there are some things that are intolerable. And then finally, I would say that there have to be either legal or regulatory ramifications for certain types of biases, right? Like, if you are designing software that affects things like people's ability to get a job, 
that's something that deserves to be monitored. And I think one of the things that has allowed tech to skate by for a long time is labeling itself as tech, right? You talk about a company like Uber, and it's like, oh, they're not a taxi company. They're a tech company. And they can get away with all of these things that if we thought about them as in terms of this complex network of drivers and vehicles, they wouldn't necessarily get away with. They would have to have commercial licenses, <laughs> commercial insurance. They would have to be able to accommodate people with wheelchairs in a fixed percentage of their fleet of cars. See, right. And so we do. And that's and think about that across the entire tech industry or whatever we call the tech industry. I think for a lot of people, this really came to a head with the 2016 election, looking at the role of social platforms, most egregiously Facebook, in circulating fake news in the run up to the election and kind of amplifying its impact. And then watching Mark Zuckerberg in the immediate aftermath of the election kind of dust his hands off and say, well, we're not a news company. We're just a tech platform. And yet here we are a full year later and we have, you know, major investigations into the amount of ads Russian sources were buying during the election. And Facebook is finally like, OK, yeah, we played a bigger role than we thought. But it, it gets to a bigger question for me because because Facebook's bottom line is almost entirely a function of its advertising sales. Its advertising sales are a function of two things. How much intelligence it grabs on its users and how many minutes per day it can keep its users glued to its platform. So it, its incentive is to put things in front of people that they react to, that they engage with. It doesn't care whether they're true or false. Often the false things that cater to users' confirmation bias perform better by those standards. So I, I guess this is my very long-winded way of asking, are there companies like Facebook that are too big, too important, and too integral to have just profits as their bottom line? So there are definitely people who are saying, you know, is Facebook a utility? And I think in some ways it is. There's people who say, is Facebook a media company? And in many ways it's that too. I think one of the challenges is that all of these things are sort of relying on us taking outdated definitions and trying to apply them to this this company that we've never seen anything like this before. Facebook is huge. It is powerful. It's also raking in money, right? It is making so much money. It's got a market cap of a half a trillion dollars or something. It could certainly afford to rein things in a bit and be more careful with what it approves or be more limited in what it tracks about you or give users more options, right? I mean, advertisers get a ton of options on Facebook and users actually get very few options to opt in or opt out of things. It could do all of that if it wanted to and it could do all of that if it was forced to. Yeah, I mean, calling themselves a platform kind of conjures this cloak of value neutrality in a way that a media platform of your uh, couldn't because they would have an editor mm -hmm. who is supposed to be the buck stopper when it comes to what goes into print or goes onto the air. It's the person you write the angry letter to when you disagree with something that you saw in print. The person you serve the, the lawsuit on if there's mm -hmm. been an instance of libel. Facebook so far has largely gotten a pass on that kind of accountability. Yeah. I mean, one of the things it did last year during the election was it, it fired that humans who were doing any level of curation and editorial work to make sure that the news that was coming to the top of the, the trending cycle was real and was an appropriate source. I mean, they've... But that's such an interesting story because they were doing it under the cloak of being tech. Face, right? I mean, Facebook got busted by the right 
because it came out that this trending stories box that would pop up in people's Facebook news feeds was actually hand curated stories that were curated by people. And the right started saying, well, this is the the stories that wind up in this box Mm -hmm. because they're selected by people are evidence of Facebook's liberal bias. Yeah. And so, you know, Facebook said it did an internal investigation and it didn't find any evidence of bias. And, you know, I don't know. At some point, I don't like. I'm not actually interested in whether it was biased or not. I'm really interested in what happened after that. So you have this accusation of bias. What Facebook didn't do was say, oh, huh, maybe we should, I don't know, hire some folks from more conservative backgrounds or who worked at a conservative media outlet in the past. Or hmm, maybe we should do a better job of auditing what what's getting surfaced to the top. What they did is they said... Or tell people that we have editors instead of faking right. like it's an algorithm. Instead, they just fired all those people. And as soon as they fired them, that's when the fake news really started. So they basically decided they were just going to hand it over to the algorithm. Instead of saying, OK, we're going to take whatever the algorithm bubbles to the top and then have people go through it, we're just going to turn it over entirely to the machines. And the result of that was, you know, they turned loose an algorithm that wasn't ready. And that's when you started seeing all of these sources like endingthefed.com from some, you know, Eastern European basement was bubbling to the top of trending. And, you know, that I think that 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 kind of decision that just basically says, um, well, we're going to we're going to prioritize the technical solution over the more human solution. I think that that is not going to solve the kinds of problems that the tech products that we are relying on today have. The reason I find that example so instructive is because Facebook wasn't responding to the expense of employing human editors. It was the public image liability of admitting it had editors. It was more important to the company to say a magic algorithm is determining what you see, as if that's not an editorial product than to say, we stand behind what we're showing you. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to a culture that prioritizes the technical over everything else, that wants to believe that technology is somehow inherently good and also, um, you know, neutral, right? That that the algorithm itself, because you've outsourced it to a machine, that that means that it's neutral because humans aren't touching it. When, of course, well, humans designed the algorithm. The algorithm can't be neutral. That is sort of the mass delusion of the tech industry to think that the technical is always right or best. Sarah Wachter-Betcher, that's probably a good note to end on. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much. Sarah Wachter-Betcher is a web consultant. She works on designing things for people to use. Has just written a book about how that process so often goes so horribly off track. The book is called Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker with help from Lucy Kang. We've been aiming to get an episode up every Friday. We have also been failing miserably. But what we do do is make sure episodes go up here before they go to the airwaves. So if you subscribe, you are always getting the latest. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. 
We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.